The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the truth of what we just sang, that you are in so many different ways covering protection. You are a shield to us and a shelter, and I pray that you would use this passage this morning and the truth that's in it to point that out and to highlight the beauty of that, particularly by, by a contrast of what needs to be sheltered from. There is not just a world full of trouble. There is, an, there is an end. And you are a shield and a shelter every day through this world and at the end. Thank you for that. Help us to think well about this, this passage and what's in it and to regard you as beautiful and good, kind and gracious that you would shield us from truth that's unfolded here. Thank you, Lord. You are good. You are kind. Build your church and honor Christ in us. Thank you. Amen. In the 1992 comedy movie, My Cousin Vinny, two youths from New York are wrongly accused of a crime while traveling in Alabama. And they are defended in court by an amateur lawyer, Cousin Vinny. And things are not looking good as the prosecution lays out its case, including eyewitnesses and photographs of the tire tracks left by the getaway car, a particular make and model that one of the defendants, like one of the defendants, drove. So Vinny is at a loss as to what to do. He knows the kids are innocent. But the case against them, oddly, somehow seems pretty airtight. Can't figure it out. But he starts to find his way, and the case turns on one key moment of testimony where Vinny's girlfriend, who knows everything about cars, suddenly on the eyewitness stand sees one critical, overlooked fact captured in the photograph of the tire tracks of the getaway car. It was right there all along, but nobody saw it. But, but suddenly, she sees it, and as the wheels turn, she begins to connect the dots in her mind. She gets kind of animated as she then lays out a collection of various obscure car facts, all of which, when you put it together, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that while similar, the defendant's car and the getaway car cannot be the same car. The kids are proven innocent. Sometimes an argument seems right, maybe even airtight, or at least very, very reasonable as you hear it laid out by somebody. It's all presented. But then along comes maybe only even just one overlooked fact. And that one fact missed, but now captured, that just turns everything and it forces the conclusion to go in a different direction. And that brings us to our passage today in 2 Peter chapter 3. These false teachers 
that are around the church, and Peter's been confronting them. He calls them scoffers in our passage today. In mocking tones, these scoffers lay out their case against the Christian teaching that there's a coming day of judgment. And maybe the case seems pretty good, persuasive. A lot of people think so. Surely there's no judgment. It's laid out there, and it seems maybe persuasive, but Peter is going to point out an overlooked detail, a fact forgotten, which pushes the conclusion in a different direction towards belief in what the prophets and now the apostles have taught us, that there is a second coming of Christ, that there is a great day of judgment of all people everywhere. That's what's been taught to us, and that's what the evidence, all the evidence, when rightly considered, what the evidence pushes us towards believing. What's true? That's what we're going to be considering today. Let me read the passage. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Read it, and then I'll draw from it two observations. Peter begins, This is now the second letter that I have written to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Second Peter 3. Two observations. Here's the first, which is kind of an, an introductory, a preliminary point that sets up the second one. More general and sets up the second one. God gives us his word to help us think along with him about life. God gives us his word to help us think along with him about life. Verse 1 begins with Peter mentioning that this is now the second letter that he's written to these folks, and that could be a reference to 1 Peter, but probably isn't. 1 Peter was written to a much larger geographic area, and what was there is, is different in detail, and it's, it's generally enough different from this book that it doesn't seem that 2 Peter is just like 1 Peter part 2. He's probably talking about a, another letter that he wrote that we don't have because it wasn't scripture. The apostles, of course, wrote lots of letters, and not all of them were scripture, and only the ones that God wanted preserved, God kept. So he's probably talking about a letter that we don't have, but in any case, this is the second one that he's written with the same goal. End of verse one, to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's reminding his readers, including us now, 
of some things that we'll see in a moment here, but he's doing this because what he thinks the reminder will do, it will stimulate or it will activate or strengthen in us a sincere mind. Now, to be sincere is to be genuine or honest, forthright. But of course we know that in English you can be sincere but be sincerely wrong. So this word actually has a little bit more to it than, than our English language does. This word includes a moral component. I was using that context. And so it would mean something like genuine and honest, forthright, but in a pure and wholesome and uncorrupted way. If you look ahead a bit in this passage, he's setting this up as opposite to the scoffers who follow their own desires, it says, you know, regardless of whether that's good and right or not, they, they follow their own desires, or in verse 5, they deliberately overlook certain things because it doesn't fit the prescribed narrative. That would be the opposite of sincere mind. Peter here is working to stir up in Christians a mind that sees things accurately, that draws the morally correct and wise conclusion, and then chooses the appropriate, proper course for response. So we could say simply, a Christ-like mind. Honest and genuine in a morally upright and wise way. That's what the Christian is to be. That's, that's the mind of Christ in us, renewed in mind. That's what he's after in us. How's he going to do that? By reminding us of many things all throughout this letter and the other letter. He's, that's been his goal all along in writing. And he's going to kind of wrap that together in a couple of general phrases. I'm carrying on this ministry of reminding that you'll remember the predictions of the holy prophets. That's the first general phrase. I'm talking about the Old Testament prophets and what they predicted. Now, of course, the prophets wrote about all kinds of stuff. I mean, the prophets, there's a lot there. They wrote about many things, but if you talk about what the prophets predicted, the main thing they were predicting, looking forward to, would be the day of Messiah, or the last days, they sometimes called it. This, this day when, when God would send his, his king and he would accomplish the deliverance of his people and the judgment and destruction of all evil. That's everywhere in the prophets, the main thing they were predicting, and we should remember that. But especially we need to remember also, secondly, the commandment of the Lord and Savior which came through your apostles. The particular ones, you know, your apostles, the ones who started this church, or maybe the ones who nourished this church in its early days as they reminded them of the commandment of the Lord and Savior. And because it's singular, the commandment, he probably doesn't mean all the various teachings, he means the teaching, the body of the faith that the Lord and Savior gave. Those are two terms. Both of them are about rule. We sometimes think of saviors being not about rule, but both of those terms were used by Caesar to describe himself. And Peter's saying, no, no, I'm talking about the Lord and the Savior. And his commandment to us, given through the apostles, this, this body of faith, the call of the ruler on all of us, you consider it all as one big body of faith, it essentially says, Messiah calls people to repent and turn to him. 
give their hearts and minds and lives to him and follow him. That's the commandment of the Lord. And it all culminates, of course, in his return to judge and rule. Christ of Psalm 2, the Christ of Transfiguration, as we saw earlier, he's going to come back as he taught us. That's his command to us. And so all of that, you put all that together, the Old Testament prophets and their prediction of the last days and then the command of the Messiah in the last days, all of that put together God's word about what God planned and then God brought about and what he then calls us to. All of that brought back up to us by way of reminder that shapes your mind. That shapes you to be sincere, honest, and genuine in a morally upright and wise way. That shapes you to have the mind of Christ. It'll correct you and build you up and strengthen you. It'll renew you on the inside. This is how we are kept from folly and sin. This is how you are kept from ignorance and blindness and bias. Not perfectly, but increasingly so. As as through the process of maturing, this word, Old and New Testament both, this word comes to grip us and shape us. That's how we grow and walk with him in righteousness in a fruitful way like Christ. This is the Christian experience, and this is what Peter was after in both letters that he wrote. To transform us by renewing our minds. So, what's your plan for word of God reminding? That's for each of us. We talked about this before, if you'll recall, back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, we talked about the ministry of reminding, because Peter talked about it there also. And it might be helpful, that's chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, might be helpful for you to go back and listen to that sermon again. There's more detail there about how one might do that with reading the Bible and being with other people over the Bible and coming to church and hearing the Bible preached. A little more detail there, but it's the same general point. We need to be reminded of God's word so as to think rightly and live rightly here in this life. You cannot live well without it. Just just check yourself. What's your plan? And how are you doing executing your plan to be reminding yourself regularly with the Old and the New Testament, what the prophets predicted and what Christ commanded? You need it. It's how your mind is shaped rightly. We all need to be reminded of that, always. And so I I beseech you, don't just breeze by this and say, sure, yeah, I, I need the Bible, of course. Are you getting it? What's your plan? And how are you doing at executing your plan? To take in God's word that you would be renewed and changed. If you want to think more about it, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Go listen to that sermon again. But that's here. That's what Peter's been after in writing both of these letters because we need it. It's what he wants the church to have. But one thing in particular we need to be reminded of, in this particular immediate context, verse 3 
He says, now right now, remember this, in these last days, scoffers will come scoffing. Which might be a bit of a surprise. Because if you're, if you're tracking through parts of the Bible, you're reading particularly parts of the prophets, you'd say that the day of Messiah is a day of victory. It's when we finally get over the hump and, and kind of, you know, win. But there's scoffers scoffing? I mean, how is that? It might be a bit of a surprise. But he wants to point out that actually you read the whole thing, this isn't the day of the victory parade quite yet. We were taught, also remember this, that Messiah would be a man of sorrows in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself said, if this world opposes, and he even used the word hate, if this world strongly dislikes me, it will strongly dislike all my followers. That's you. Now. So, yes, there's a victory parade coming, but not yet. Right now, this world is set against Christ and against his people. And what specifically they're saying in their scoffing, we'll come to that in a little bit, but the, but the thing to consider at this moment is the presence of scoffers should not be a problem for us. It shouldn't like make us wonder, am I on the right path? Because I thought that you know, Christ would come and Christ rose in glory and, and everything would go great, but it's not. In the last days, there will be scoffers scoffing. That is actually is, flip it around, it's actually is evidence that we're in the last days because there are scoffers scoffing. It should be reassuring rather than troubling. This is the Christian life. This is the life of the faith. This is our experience, so just walk in it. With sincere minds, with Christ-like minds, taking this word, being shaped by it. And you can, if you put these things together, you realize that you know, part of the beauty of being shaped by God's word and having this mind that is honest and genuine and true in a morally upright and wise way is that it equips you to be the adult in the room rather than just another one of the kids who's extremely discontent and frustrated and full of angst. This is the path to peace. Because it gives you perspective. You know what's going on, and so you don't need to be like riled up about, you know, kids, they, they don't know what's happening. They don't really see the whole picture, but the adult in the room says, I get this, it's not fun, but okay, you know, this is gonna pass. And after your nap, you'll be fine. That's being the adult in the room. Adults don't get down on the, on the floor with a kid and duke it out with them. You put them in bed. This equips you to be the adult in the room, to, to walk through a life of opposition and scoffing and insulting. And, I mean, insults are insulting. Nobody likes that, but you can kind of say, I get where that's coming from. I, okay, I'm the adult here. I'm not going to get down in the mud with you. I'm not going to lord over you in an arrogant way, but I'm also, I'm just, I'm going to be okay because I understand some things. I've been transformed as my mind's been renewed by my regular intake of the Bible, right? It's a great privilege it's the mark of the Christian. It's a sign of God's grace that he gives us his word to make us different now. To walk through life properly 
in faith like humans, seeing things but choosing wisely, not like animals driven by instinct and not like false teachers who are following whatever they please, whatever they desire, overlooking inconvenient truths. Which leads us to the second point. He gave us his word so that we can understand and we can walk and think with him in this life. And here's a biggie, something important to remember. Second point, remember the flood. Remember the flood. Evidence that God is committed to making a purified world. Remember the flood evidence that God is committed to making a purified world. So in the last days, scoffers come scoffing, and what are they saying? Verse 4, and I hear finally in this letter we come to the clearest statement of what it is they're teaching as the way to get to what they want, a discarding of God's authority and license to licentiousness. Here's what they're what they're teaching, most clearly stated, verse 4, where is this promise of his coming? You say the Old Testament prophets predicted, and then Jesus taught, and so you teach, that Messiah would return to reign over a kingdom in great glory and power. Okay, great. So, like when? Soon, you say. Okay, great. So, like how soon? because it's been 30 or 35 years already, nothing. They're saying this in the middle of the 60s AD. Imagine what they would say in the year 2022. Actually, not to imagine because people say it. It's not happening. (laughs) I mean, yeah, sure, you say Jesus is coming back. Okay, here we are almost 2,000 years later. Where's this promise of his coming? Which, of course, is a question, it's actually a statement. He's not coming. It's all made up. Because, continuing on in verse 4, ever since the fathers fell asleep, it's been same old, same old, nothing new. All things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of the creation. You know, maybe this existence is a circle and we just go around and around, or maybe it's like a toy wound up or a top given a really good spin, and when all the energy kind of falls out of it, we'll just, you know, fade to black. I don't know, but one thing I do know, this whole Jesus is coming back to judge and set up a kingdom thing is not happening. It seemed like maybe something was going to happen with the fathers, at least the prophets set it up that way, like, a, like big things. But, you know, then you know, they died and nothing really. I mean, a new people came, but they, you know, the people just kind of, just like they got lost in the sea of ancient Near Eastern history. It's all the same from the beginning of the creation up till now. That argument really resonates with a lot of people because it does kind of look like the way things are. History has got a lot of same in it. People wear different clothes. The rulers have different names, but it's kind of... Very, very similar for a long time. And stuff just goes on and on. Here we still are, probably because there is no big finale, no final judgment. So probably we should eat and drink and be merry because this is all that there is. Except, verse 5, you miss something. 
it says they deliberately overlook. And surely some who deliberately overlook are lying. They are being deceptive as they very cleverly skip this fact that's coming up. But probably a, a lot of people deliberately overlook it because they don't really connect all the dots and know what it means. We've all done that. You see something and you say like, uh, moving on, because you don't know what to do with it. So you deliberately set it aside. So for one reason or another, they are deliberately overlooking something. All things have not continued on as they were from the beginning of the creation. You could put it like this, in a way, we live in the second creation. Initially, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's what the verse says, that's Genesis chapter one. Now Genesis one is not a science book nor is it exhaustive in some scientific way explaining how the creation came into being. In the very first couple of verses of the entire Bible, it just says God created the heavens and the earth from nothing, but what he made was just this mass of churning, unformed chaos. It says, without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the waters. And God said, let there be. And there was. And out of the water, God's word brought forth eventually this very good world with all the plants and all the creatures and all the humans, holy image bearers of God, by and through water and word. But what happened? Not, nothing happened. Just continued on all all the same ever since. No, 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 no. Verse six in our passage. And by means of these, water and word, that word world that existed, it was deluged with water and it perished. That's Genesis chapter six and seven. Which unfortunately is so close to Genesis chapter one that a lot of us just kind of like put it all together way back there. It's all kind of the same. And we don't think of it as, as a package deal, and we don't realize there's a big gap there. Now, among Bible-believing Christians, there is difference of opinion about how much time elapsed between Genesis 2 with Adam and Genesis 6 with Noah, but it is at least 1,500 years. So we'll go with that. 1,500 years, the world existed. The first one created by water and word. And then God spoke to the water again and wiped it all out. And the earth was once again a formless, surging ocean. The waters of the deep, with just one little boat bobbing along on the surface. And then God again spoke over the waters and from the water brought forth a second time a clean, spotless, righteous world. That's very, very shocking and remarkable and unexpected after a long pause of 1,500 years. God in wrath 
over sin among ungodly people poured out his judgment and destroyed it all and started over. That is not second verse, same as the first since the beginning of the creation. That is a big change. And realize this, that flood, that really, really actually happened. Numerous ancient peoples, non-Jewish peoples, not in the Bible, not quoting the Bible, not related to the Bible, numerous ancient peoples have written records that still exist. I read a few of them this week that describe a great flood that came because the gods were angry and wanted to destroy all people except for one little boat, one guy in one boat. Otherwise, nothing. Now, all the details are all different. They don't, they don't know everything exactly right, but it's all there, and there's no way that's a coincidence. You know, one of them calls Noah. They don't call him Noah. They call him Superwise. The man's name is Superwise. Wise enough to build a boat. They don't know what to call him. They don't know what to make of it, but it's, it's there, and there's no way that's a coincidence that not just the Bible, but other peoples would all have record in their pasts of some great flood that came and wiped out everything except for one little bitty boat. This flood happened. And the flood then in the day of Noah is a huge piece of evidence, often overlooked, supporting what the prophets predicted and Christ commanded, that this world is headed towards another day of judgment. Not by water. God promised he wouldn't use water against people who would not fear great rain. He was going to send rain again. He didn't want people to be afraid of that. So he promised, I will never use water again, but I will use fire. And he told us so in the prophets. And he told us so, think of John the Baptist, how the Messiah comes with fire to burn away the chaff of the wicked in the world. He's bringing that day one day. A thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years. I, I don't know when. Peter doesn't know when. Doesn't care. Verse 7, this he does know and care about. God's word is keeping this heaven and earth like it kept the previous one. Keeping it for the day of destruction by fire. Which is dreadful. Pause there for a second and take this in. God, in wrath against sin, is holding the world right here. And there's a great conflagration. He's holding the world. And in any moment that he chooses to put that into the fire, it will go into the fire and it will all be burned up this is fearsome and sobering you look at the flood after 1500 years of patience and years then of personal preaching 
Remember, we've talked about how 1 Peter tells us that Christ preached through Noah. Christ personally preached through Noah. Anybody who can hear me, get on the boat. Because there's a need for a boat. There's a judgment coming. And here's the boat with the door wide open. And all who can hear me, anybody who wants to come, if you want refuge from this world and refuge from the coming wrath, here's a boat. And I promise all who are weary and heavy laden and who say, enough, I need you and who come, I will shut you up in the boat and I will carry you through the water. I promise. I will give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. In the boat, later in the cross, a new heart and a new mind, a new Lord and a new Savior, not yourself and all your folly, but me and my wisdom and grace, I promise, surrender, come. After years of that and being stiff-armed constantly for centuries, patient and merciful offering, patient and merciful offering, patient and merciful offering, suddenly God said, no more. And he shut the door to the ark. And it started to rain. The patience ended and the water fell. The patience will end and the fire will fall. Not because God wants to destroy the earth. Say this carefully with a hand across your mouth. Not because God wants to destroy the earth. Worse, God wills to destroy the ungodly. Verse 7. God will act to bring a day of judgment and destruction on purpose, deliberately. It's not an act that doesn't sneak up. He brings it on his deliberate choice, his decision. And the verse says that it's a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly people. In their wickedness and rebellion. This sometimes sets us off because we don't grasp the depth, what it really means when somebody says, in their wickedness and rebellion. Something in us feels like it's actually somehow worse for God to destroy people in their wickedness and rebellion than it is for people to be wicked and rebellious. With renewed minds, though, let us think rightly about this. He will judge in wick, all wickedness and rebellion. This is sobering and serious, but it should not be shocking. It should be entirely expected because of the flood. The flood shows us God's abiding, unchanging character. All along, God's goal has been to have a creation that is clean and righteous, pure, sinless, and a perfect reflection of his glorious goodness. That's why he created in the first place, and it's why he created again in the second place, and it's why he's going to create again in the third place. To get a new heaven and a new earth where a righteous and glorious kingdom of God is all that there is and there is no more sin and no more evil. God's goal has always been this and he's God, sovereign over all. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the flood is simply proof of his character. Committed to and full of determination to bring about such a beautiful kingdom. 
determination to bring about a beautiful kingdom and his willingness to judge and destroy all that is evil and opposes this goal, even, even precious people. And people are precious to the God who is love. People alone, made in God's image, all of us, every single one of us, People unique, therefore more valuable. He is slow to anger against them. And he takes no pleasure in the death of people at all in any way. He takes no pleasure in their condemnation. He sorrows at their sin. He is grieved at their pain. We see that very clearly in Jesus himself as he walks the earth and interacts with people, scoffing and attacking and abusing. He is not delighted and not happy. Grieved. He weeps over Jerusalem. There is no way that we can take this and look at it and see a God who is stone-faced and furious with ungodly people. He's the God of love. But, 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 he is also, let us be clear about this, the God of righteousness and justice who hates evil and is holy, holy, holy. If he is good, he must be in opposition to evil. If he is good, he must be in opposition to evil. That's the character of God. And there has always been a day of judgment coming against all ungodliness and all that resists and discards and opposes and defames and disobeys. Scoffers and false teachers and most of the world around us miss this truth deliberately sometimes. But it is true and the flood tells us so. And at the same time, do not miss this. And be sure that when you interact with other people, if you're not a Christian here and you're hearing this, be sure that you hear me say this as I interact with you right now. Be sure that you hear this and be sure that you tell this because while the flood shows the character of God in his holiness and his determination to wipe out evil, the flood also, also, also clearly shows the character of God in his remarkable and incredibly wise grace. Because there was an ark. The ark tells us of the beautiful character of God in his mercy and his grace. How we who are sinners can be saved through the water of wrath and even saved through the coming fire of wrath by being sheltered, covered, made safe in Christ. And we need to hear this, every single one of us, because all of us are ungodly. There is, there is a way the Bible talks, and it is talking here with this division of righteous and ungodly. But before we get to that spot, we need to step back and say, actually, all of us are in the same boat, or rather, none of us are in the boat. All of us are ungodly. In our own natures. And by grace, by grace, not because of our own wisdom, not because we are smarter or better or in some way superior, but because of God's grace and God's grace alone, some of us have seen the ark for what it was and seen the coming flood for what it was and have sought out God's provided shelter. But that offer that came to us by grace is still going out by grace and hear that and be sure that you tell that when you talk about the flood. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of this great God, and God in mercy provided a single way to be saved, hiding ourselves not in the boat, but hiding ourselves in Christ, trusting him alone to bear the wrath of God for us. That's how the wrath falls on him and doesn't hit us. We're covered over in the cross. If you're hearing that and you're hearing that for the first time, please realize there is a coming judgment, but that day is not yet right now. Right now is the day of offered mercy. And please watch. Something in us, something in us says something is, I think if we just call it what it is, I think it is pride. Something in us says, I want another way. Why? How many boats do you need? Why? God provided one, and it works. And his call is in humility to say, here, come, come. It's, it's for you, here. And it is, and it works. So come to him. Trust him. He's a God of mercy and grace and will forgive. And for those of us who have then, this day of judgment and destruction is actually a day of deliverance. Like when Noah came out of the ark into a world made new, washed clean. We in Christ will pass through the fire into a world that has all the evil burned out of it. And it is clean and purified once again for forever. God's flood tells us that too. It's a message of deliverance. That hope is coming. So remember, God brought the flood. Don't miss that. God brought the flood. He's committed to a world made clean where he is rightly honored and his people are profoundly filled and satisfied with him and evil is no more. Think well about that, Christian. And do not lose hope now. Let me pray. Father, help. Help us to handle all these truths in the right way and in the right balance. Make us sober and joyful about the right things. Would you call us to faithful walking with you, call us to lives of hope. And maybe even some who don't know you yet, Lord, would you call them to saving faith and to deliverance? Use your word, build your people. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.